This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. We are still at the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles in this episode of The Extraordinary Story, where the Jewish people are sleeping outside by the temple in tents or booths, as the Feast of Booths is what it's called sometimes. Only now we see Jesus practicing what we've heard him preaching. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery, and we will see some fascinating details in the story itself and then try to apply them to our own times, which are so characterized by sexual sin, so much so that each of us has been tainted by it. So as a heads up, this episode will address common sexual sins of our time. But let's start with the Gospel of John, chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Well, first of all, it needs to be noted that there is a controversy about where this story belongs. The Catholic Church and the Council of Trent declared that the Church uses the Vulgate translation of the Bible as the basis for its canon of Scripture. That's St. Jerome's Latin translation from the 4th century, the same one used for the King James Bible's New Testament. It's good to use the Vulgate because St. Jerome was a very rigorous and talented scholar who had access to manuscripts we don't. In his translation, this story of the woman caught in adultery is in the Gospel of John, which is where it appears in most Bibles to this day. But significant early Greek fathers don't mention this story, and significant early Greek manuscripts of the Gospels either don't have it or have it elsewhere, even in Luke's Gospel. St. Jerome himself notes that the story about the woman caught in adultery is missing from many ancient copies of the Gospel text. While modern scholars often say it was added in to the Gospel from a different source, St. Augustine suggests that angry men had in fact taken it out. Why? Quote, Some of slight faith, or rather some hostile to true faith, fearing, as I believe, that a liberty to sin with impunity is granted their wives, remove from their scriptural texts the account of our Lord's pardon of the adulteress, 
as though when he said, from now on, sin no more, he granted permission to sin, end quote. It's a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around in our culture where sexual sin is accepted and promoted rather than feared and hidden, but it's worth noting that the story has been considered scandalous because in it, Jesus seems too merciful to some readers. But St. Augustine points out the last two lines of the gospel, which are famous, go and sin no more. But I think the first two lines of the gospels are every bit as significant. What are the first two lines of the gospel? Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he arrived in the temple area. Why doesn't the gospel just start with his arrival in the temple area? Because it's important to the story that he went to the Mount of Olives the night before. Think of what that means. If he arrived in the temple early in the morning, when was he at the Mount of Olives? In the middle of the night. What was he doing there? Well, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He exists outside of time, in absolute unity with the Trinity. For Jesus, the Mount of Olives is filled with all the associations of its past, present, and future all at once. And the Mount of Olives is the setting for the agony in the garden, that terrible moment when Jesus will take the sins of mankind onto himself before being betrayed and led to his death. His agony in the garden is an experience so significant that he seems to anticipate it when he comes to Jerusalem, as we will see. The Mount of Olives is the place where he will stop and cry for those who are going to kill him. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. And so when the gospel mentions his night in the Mount of Olives, Every early Christian would think that's the place where he prays for sinners and begs us to join him for just one hour praying with him for sinners. Well, the other characters in the story were up late in that night also, but they weren't praying for sinners. The scribes and Pharisees drag a woman before Jesus and say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. So that entails that first... The Pharisees were somehow staking out the place where the woman was sinning and spying on her such that they caught her at it, but did not prevent her from sinning or keep her from sinning, but only wanted to catch her at sinning, maybe. Second, the woman who was, in fact, caught committing adultery was with a man that night and was, in fact, sinning. But where's the man? Why isn't he being interrogated too? And third, at the same time, the previous night, Jesus, as we saw, was in the Mount of Olives, his place of prayer for sinners, literally praying for all those involved. So that's the background to the confrontation between the Pharisees and the woman and Jesus. When they drag her in front of him, he is the only one who has already dedicated serious time to the rehabilitation of all involved. Speaking of which, this gives the dark side to this beautiful feast. All human activity has a beauty and a darkness because there's no group of people who's exempt from original sin and there's no time on the calendar where we are not tempted to sin. And while staying in booths by the temple is a great religious festival, it's also an opportunity for sin for some, an opportunity that apparently this woman took. Anyway, the Pharisees find the woman, and now they try to trap Jesus. They say, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So this is supposed to be a no-win situation for Jesus. If he says, Yes, stone her, 
then he will be in trouble with the Romans, who forbid the Jews from carrying out capital punishment. If he says no, he will be in trouble with the Pharisees and with the law, who will denounce him for contradicting Moses. And that's one reason this story fits so well here in John chapter 8. It seems to represent the argument the Pharisees and Jesus have been having. Jesus challenged them that he seemed to be the only person they were pursuing for breaking the law. And here they bring another candidate of somebody that they're willing to kill for breaking the law. Anyway, so what does Jesus do? First, it's important to note what he does not say. Jesus doesn't say that the law is wrong about adultery. And he doesn't say that it's wrong to stone people for adultery. In fact, the whole story of the passion and death of Jesus presupposes that sinners deserve punishment, punishment Jesus takes on to himself. St. John Henry Newman describes what the agony in the garden must have been like. We'll mention it again when we get there, but Newman says several saints have been given the sensation of the true spiritual pain of sin, but only for a split second, because if they experienced it longer, it would have killed them. On the night before he died, Jesus experienced the full pain of not just one sin, but of all the sins of mankind. Writes Newman, quote, God alone can bear the load of it. Hopes blighted, vows broken, lights quenched, warnings scorned, opportunities lost, the innocent betrayed, the young hardened, the penitent relapsing, the just overcome, the aged failing, the anguish of shame, the pining of disappointment, the sickness of despair. End quote. Our sin was heartrending, revolting, detestable, maddening to Jesus, he said. That is because sin is a horrifying betrayal of who we are. God has showered us with gifts and talents, and when we sin, we freely put them at Satan's disposal in his rebellion against God. Jesus in the Mount of Olives on the night before he died made himself guilty of all of it so he could fulfill in himself the punishment that we deserve. So the woman's act of adultery did get punished by stoning after all, only with Jesus as the victim when, quote, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling upon the ground, end quote. That sounds a lot to me like the injuries of someone who's been pummeled by stones. Be that as it may, however, Jesus now says to the Pharisees, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. But Jesus is himself the only one in the group who is without sin. And while we can imagine the Pharisees stoning a woman caught in adultery, it is impossible for us to imagine Jesus throwing a stone at her. He didn't come to condemn or punish, but to pardon and rehabilitate. Holy people don't relish destruction like the Pharisees seem to. But holy people are also utterly different from the adulterous woman. Real holy people don't indulge in selfish behavior and don't wallow in their own sin or others' sins. In fact, the holy thing to do is what Jesus will eventually do, take her punishment for her. The accusers walk away one by one, starting with the older, wiser ones. Then Jesus straightens up, looks at the woman, and at each of us who has sinned. He asks, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. Neither do I condemn you, says the man who will soon die because of her adultery and because of your sins and mine, too. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. All of this is said for our benefit. He's telling us to do three hard things. First of all, avoid sin. Secondly, sacrifice and pray for sinners instead of attacking or condemning them. And third, tell sinners not to sin. Some of us do one or two of these things. We need to do all three of these things. First, avoid sin by avoiding the 
places or persons who lead you to sin? The woman should have done that. Second, instead of railing against sin in our world, sacrifice and pray for sinners. Third, instead of complaining about sin online or in gossip, talk to the sinners themselves about the insights you have about what could make their lives happier. In other words, truly love sinners by changing your life, facing setback, and doing the hard things that cause you discomfort but help them instead of the easy things that flatter yourself while causing them discomfort. So far, so good for the story of the woman caught in adultery. But we've neglected an intriguing detail in the story. John goes out of his way to point out that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What's that all about? Well, for one thing, the detail suggests that the writer of this story was indeed an eyewitness to the scene. For instance, maybe John the Evangelist. He saw how Jesus behaved and he saw how the Pharisees behaved. But lots of people have lots of theories about what Jesus wrote. I'm intrigued by the ancient understanding that this is linked directly to what Jesus said in the gospel we talked about in last episode, that everyone who is thirsty should come to him and drink. Because in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So this may be yet another act of Jesus declaring his divinity. Or maybe there's a more prosaic reason. Maybe the fact that he wrote on the ground is the point, apart from any consideration of what he wrote on the ground. He's modeling what our behavior should be when faced with a sinner like this. Not just the woman caught in adultery, but also her accusers. If you need to correct someone, the goal isn't to show them that you're right and they're wrong. The goal is to help them correct course and get on the right path. So after Jesus says, let the one in your group who is without sin cast the first stone, he starts writing on the ground to allow them to bow out gracefully. This is a very significant lesson for us. It's really, really hard for someone to admit that they're wrong. So if you put someone in a situation where they have to suffer a public defeat and announce publicly that you were right and they were wrong, you guarantee that they will not admit their fault because next to zero people are able to publicly debase themselves like that. But if you look away and do something else, you allow them to do the right thing in privacy with their dignity and self-respect intact. The accusers recognize this. It was only after he started writing again, in other words, averting his gaze from their predicament, that they, as St. John tells us, went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Jesus, therefore, subtly but surely, helps each of the people in this story discover the truth about themselves, not by staring them down and putting them on the spot, but by positive guidance and trusting their judgment respectfully. And what truth do they see? The Pharisees gain clarity. They are men who really do claim to be without sin because of their personal righteousness and their cleansing rituals. But they bow to the truth and go away, beginning with the elders who know best their own limitations. Jesus helps them to see past their pride. And what does Jesus do for the woman? She's a woman and a sinner, leaving her without rights and without respect, a persona non grata. But Jesus treats her, perhaps for the first time in her life, as a person worthy of dignity and respect, saying, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. She goes from being the unclean sinner to being a trustworthy daughter freed by God's mercy. And who is Jesus? 
He is the one who shouted in the temple, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is the one who refreshes and strengthens all he meets. We face no-win situations in our own day that are very much like this. The church's teachings on sexuality are now profoundly out of step with the world at large, and yet the sexual sins of our day have never more clearly been at the root of sadness and alienation for so many people. We need to share the church's sexual teachings anyway, remembering who we are and who these people are. We are all sinners. None of us can condemn the others, not even those of us who are religious. We are all sons and daughters of God who can win his pardon if we will only believe in his mercy. And Jesus Christ is the living water who satisfies us all if we will only accept him and stop turning against him. And that brings me to another reflection I'd like to make about this passage. Because you can read the whole thing as a commentary on sexual sin in a way that is extremely relevant to our times. Thou shalt not commit adultery is the sixth commandment. And if you look at a good examination of conscience guide, you will see that this sin encompasses far more than just married people betraying their spouse. You will also see that in our day, we are all guilty in one degree or another of exactly what is at issue in this commandment and in this gospel. Adultery in our hearts, thoughts, actions, pastimes, entertainments, and lifestyles. Pornography is the biggest media in our time, and the church teaches that it is gravely sinful in itself. And we also note that it leads to masturbation, which the church teaches is gravely sinful if it's done with full knowledge and full consent, a mortal sin. And pornography leads us to think of human beings as objects put here for our pleasure, such that the prevalence of pornography has led directly to the prevalence of human trafficking. It's become a thriving industry in our day. And we will talk soon in an episode about church teaching on divorce, coming from Christ's teaching on divorce, but many of us are either divorced or in relationships that casually dismiss the sexual norms of the church's teaching in some way or another. As for adultery in our hearts, sexually suggestive ads are everywhere on the internet, and the movies and shows we binge watch are full of sex, shown or implied, celebrated or winked at, or simply treated as an unremarkable part of life. Pride Month is filled with sexually explicit public celebrations. Christians who object are publicly hated, and social media is filled with sex. Even the thoughtful Humans of New York, a great social media provider who helps us see the value of every human being, is now frequently posting sexual stories as if casual sex were the most natural thing in the world, ignoring what it does to people. The Me Too movement finally told men to stop forcing themselves on women they have power over, but women still feel like they live in a rape culture often, where women are expected to be available for casual sex if they are to be attractive. If women are unwilling to have sex, many men are unwilling to court them. And yet the shame and pain of sexual sin is causing separation, loneliness, self-loathing, and despair for both men and women. But in this gospel story of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus is here to lead you and me, sin's slaves, like a new Moses on a new exodus to a place of freedom. John tells us that the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. We talked about the ancient reasons they did that, but there's a psychological reason for it too that's just as current today. Condemning the adulterous woman would mean Jesus is condemning all of those who were implicated in sexual sin. If she should be stoned to death, 
What about the rest of us who are guilty of the same sin, online or in our minds? And forgiving the adulterous woman would mean forgiving all those implicated in sexual sin. If she can do what she did and get off scot-free, what about the rest of us? Why should we moderate our sexual behavior? Can't he shrug our sin off too? To let her off the hook lets us all off the hook. They weren't expecting what Jesus did, which was to have mercy on her, but to point out that the righteous executioners were sinners too. As St. Augustine put it, Jesus tells them, If you think I ought to condemn sins, I shall begin with you. But let's put ourselves in the adulterous woman's place for a moment. She was apparently guilty of sexual sin and stood before God. Well, we too are guilty of sexual sin, and we too stand before God. What Jesus says to the adulterous woman should be a balm to all of us who have been caught in the trap of sexual sin. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He asks. She replies, no one, sir. Then Jesus delivers the gospel's pivotal words, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Look at what Jesus does for the adulterous woman, what he does for us. Sexual sin is isolating and humiliating. The devil starts out tempting us to something enticing and exciting and ends by telling us that we are worthless and disgusting. Sexual sins are uniquely sins that attack our vulnerability, and they are also uniquely connected to past wounds in our lives, wounds that burn sexual sins into our memory, leaving a lingering despair. I think sexting is a great illustrative example. It's a common problem in our time that young people send sexual images of themselves to each other. It should be no surprise that they do that, because we have taught them to. We adults have made pornography available to them, and they naturally see it and then imitate it. And there are many, many sad stories of girls who sent nude images of themselves to boyfriends, who then shared the images with others. The girls then feel like they face a school full of people who have seen them naked, and they feel like they have redefined themselves and can never come back. And in case after case, the news tells us of girls in this situation who have committed suicide. The same thing happens in the case of kids who have divulged their sexual desires in texts or online to people who then use them to shame them. But this is just a more visible version of what exists in many other sexual sins. You see this phenomenon in the music of everyone from Alanis Morissette to Taylor Swift. In the 1990s, Alanis' songs about being betrayed by men shot her to the top of the charts, and Taylor Swift does the same thing today, artfully describing sexual betrayal again and again. I pulled your body into mine every night. Now I get fake niceties, she sings in her song, Happiness. And her famous 10-minute long version of All Too Well is a long-form meditation on just this problem of a society that treats sex as no big deal. When we all know better, and how we are all supposed to pretend we don't notice. Taylor Swift sings of her passionate love affair that ended in nothing. She says, It's like I'm paralyzed by it. I'd like to be my old self again, but I'm still trying to find it. After nights when you made me your own, now you mail back my things and I walk home, alone. These are the words of a woman who's been lied to and betrayed in the most powerful, primordial way, by the promise of true love consummated by sex. Women have faced men all their lives who have appealed to their desire for lifetime love to get nighttime access to their beds, and we have ended up devastated by this lie. Sex is a powerful thing that bonds us, 
and the lie that it is something we can shrug off leaves a raw wound that never heals. And looking back, we can see that all our sexual sins came because of failures of love and vulnerability in our life. Sexual sinners are saying with their actions, I desperately want love, and then I feel like damaged goods. The book Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing, by the evangelical Christian J. Stringer, addresses this. After looking at over 3,800 men and women seeking freedom from unwanted sexual behavior, including the use of pornography, affairs, or buying sex, Stringer sees unwanted sexual behaviors as pointing to the need for a much deeper healing. Unwanted sexual behaviors are not random, but reflect unaddressed parts of our stories, he says. Dealing with these underlying issues can lead not just to more pure behavior, but greater strength in our whole emotional life. In particular, he ties sexual sins to rigid or disengaged family systems. In other words, our families of origin lacked unconditional love, as shown by their uncaring harshness on the one hand or neglect on the other. Also, abandonment, where we felt like no one was there for us because literally no one was home or no one we could turn to was home. Next, he cites triangulation and enmeshment, which he says often happens in broken homes, where one or the other spouse turns to a child for emotional needs not being satisfied by the spouse. This really messes up the child. His fourth root cause is a history of trauma, which is when we feel we have made ourselves vulnerable only to be rejected or used. And his last example is sexual abuse, which is extremely common in families and in public schools where it is too often tolerated and left unaddressed. All that hurt is laid on children who then grow up in an oversexed culture and learn to say with their actions, I no longer deserve better, so I will ape love's actions in ugly ways that fit the compromised person I have become. Stringer shared some pretty astounding stories. For starters, one that surprised me was that he pointed out how research shows that gambling addiction isn't about winning money, it's an addiction to losing money. Gamblers know that they usually lose, and it becomes a form of self-abuse. Well, it's the same with pornography. He says people are often addicted to the very kinds of images that in some way resemble either their own past sins or the ways others have sinned against them. So pornography becomes a way to wallow in your past while getting a powerful feeling of temporary chemical euphoria that makes you feel, for a moment, less like a victim. But we fall into a trap of self-loathing. Here's how Jay Stringer describes how sexual sin plays out in a real life. Quote, For instance, you are having a terrible week at work, and so suffer a feeling of futility, and come home to watch four random hours of Netflix, which is a form of dissociation escaping your reality. You are upset with yourself for how unproductive you are, which makes you angry, and then find yourself scrolling through a porn site, accessing your lust and anger, to offer yourself a momentary reprieve from disappointment. Next evening, a friend invites you to over to hang out, but you say no to something good that would really help you because you are deprived of the real human contact you need, because you feel so disappointed in who you are. Your shame then drives you to even more pornography use. He says, unwanted sexual behavior does not happen out of thin air. There's always a context. So the sexual sinner feels ugly and unlovable and probably expects and agrees with those who would condemn their sin. So, let's return to the story of the woman who has been caught in adultery. As she's dragged before the crowds, 
She's like one of those teens whose nudity is taken out of context and put on display before the whole world. Or like someone who has made herself totally vulnerable to a partner who then shrugged her off. Like Abigail who gave everything she had to a guy who changed his mind in Taylor Swift's song. Or she's like a pornography addict who feels like his identity is now changed and he's disgusting and worthless. What a tremendous relief it must have been for this woman to look into the loving eyes of her Savior and hear the words, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus is saying, Where are the high and mighty people who treated you like a piece of trash? They fled at the slightest suggestion that their own sins might be revealed. They are no better than you. Then Jesus says these words that are the master key to the whole incident. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The vote of confidence from Jesus Christ must have been overwhelming. He says in effect, You see who I am and the authority I have. You see my ability to strike fear in the powerful people who accuse you. Listen to what I am telling you. I see who you are, too. I know who you are, through and through, and I am telling you that I trust you more than I trust them. I trust that you can go from here changed. I know the real you, the childhood you, the loving you. I know you are broken, hurt, and longing for love. Well, you found it. I love you, a real, total, unconditional love. I trust that with this love, you have found what you need. You don't have to return to ugliness and impurity. You don't have to keep rooting around in the mud of your past. You don't have to be chained by the slave master to the sin you hate. I have forgiven you, and my forgiveness heals. My forgiveness restores innocence. Go forward on my authority and be who you are. Walk away from debasing yourself. Sin no more. St. Augustine says that because of her contact with Jesus, she is cured by a divine physician. We can be cured by him too, by his purity. And again, that's why the very first lines of this reading are so important to me. He went to the Mount of Olives while she was in the midst of her sin. He went to the place where he takes onto himself the sins of every sinner, including yours and mine and hers. And just as he was loving and addressing the Father about this woman, he was loving you and me and longing for our redemption, even while we sinned. The law says that the woman should die for her adultery. And Jesus asked the Pharisees for one without sin to carry out the punishment. And the one without sin will indeed carry out the punishment, not by pummeling us, but by being pummeled in our place. And he will do it not to shrug his shoulders and say he doesn't care about what we did. He does care. It was terrible. So terrible it led to his death. But he died and forgave us and loves us and wants to lead us to a new exodus. The new exodus we've been talking about all season, starting with the transfiguration. In the first exodus, Moses led the Hebrew people out of vile slavery in Egypt. He led them through impossible obstacles, including a sea that separated them from freedom. They walked right through it. Their old slaveholders pursued them, but the Lord snuffed them out, leaving them quenched like a wick in the Red Sea. Then the Lord told his people to stop dwelling on their ugly history of slavery. He said, Remember not the events of the past, the things of long ago consider not. See, I am doing something new. Now he is leading us on a new exodus. We are wounded by what happened to us as children, as young people. Sexual wounds are like knives. They are wounds that keep wounding us. But the Lord's advice to sexual sinners, every one of us, is the same. Remember not the events of the past. The things of long ago consider not. See, I am doing something new. 
For us, instead of the Red Sea, it's the waters of baptism that free us and snuff out our pursuers. And those waters well up in us every time we go to confession. Baptism floods us with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And when we confess, the Holy Spirit floods our enemies and renews our strength. There's an ancient prayer to the Holy Spirit which captures this. Holy Spirit, wash what is unclean, water what is parched, heal what is diseased, bend what is rigid, warm what is cold, strengthen what is crooked. But freedom from sin, including sexual sin, has to be chosen each day. For the Israelites, the exodus from Egypt was the beginning of their journey, not their journey's end. It's the same with those forgiven in Christ. St. Paul describes the road ahead this way. Forgetting what lies behind, but straining forward to what lies ahead, I continue my pursuit toward the goal, the prize of God's upward calling in Christ Jesus. God gives his people a new identity, a new direction, a new life to replace the painful memories of the past, pressing on to the higher calling of our Lord. There are no better companions for this journey than Mary and Joseph. Mary was praying early in the morning, like Jesus was in our story, and the angel came to her and said, Full of grace, because she is the one without sin. And she said, Be it done unto me according to thy word, and gave permission for the incarnation of our Lord to happen. And Joseph was confronted with his betrothed, pregnant but not by him. And what did he do? He decided to divorce her quietly, to absent himself from this pregnant woman's life without denouncing her. He knew what would happen. Eventually, her pregnancy would be obvious to all, and when he was accused of impregnating her, he would continue his silence so that he would be accused instead of her. And if they followed the law, they would stone him to death, not her. That's how we're all supposed to handle sexual impurity. Take the hit for someone else. If you have to accuse them, do it gently, with love. Turn away and let them have their dignity. Put their future back into their hands. And if there is a consequence for their sins, take care of it. Help them with the child. Help them afford counseling. Help them with your presence. Help them with your life, not just your money. Our Lady, Refuge of Sinners, pray for us. St. Joseph, Mary's most chaste spouse, pray for us. Help us on the new exodus, the exodus from Satan, the slaveholder, who lies about our worth and chains us to our sins. Give us the grace to pay any price and flee into any desert, to stop telling the false story of our life that makes us ugly and shameful and start a new chapter in life, a chapter where we see everyone we meet in person or in images as children of God and potential future heroes and heroines in Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.